Hello, everyone, and welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. Today, we bring you a special edition, a memorial to a longtime Westcon history professor, Dr. Herb Janik, who passed away last week. Dr. Janik influenced an uncounted number of people through the university and with his work in the community, and we bring together four colleagues to remember him. Joining us in the studio in Whitehall are Dr. Ed Hagen, a Westcon English professor who worked with Herb, Bill Devlin, a retired high school history professor and historian, Stephen Flanagan, who teaches history at New Milford High School, and joining us on the phone a few minutes into the podcast is Dr. Chris Cook, a political science professor here at Westcon. Here is our conversation about Herb. The four of us are here. And we're going to talk about Herb Janik, who was a beloved professor here at Westcon. Some of us here worked with him, some were students, some did both. And uh, as far as I could tell, being here not as a professor, but over the last 12 years working here, uh, Herb was one of the revered people on campus that uh, just about everybody looked up to and um, thought well of and sought out his advice. And yeah. He's looked up to for good reason. He's mm-hmm. one of the great people that, uh, in many different ways, many different ways. He's a great teacher. He was a great person to work with, and uh, he was also a person who made a big mark in the community because he was able to kind of network and organize things and get people to do worthwhile projects. In the so, local history. Uh, com- uh, in a number of different things. And the local history was a, was a big one, but um, also on campus and with Project Acorn. And Bill often referred to Herb as kind of having this Tom Sawyer-esque quality that, you know, before you know it, you're whitewashing the fence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but he, he had that ability. His, I think his enthusiasm was really kind of spontaneous, where you infectious, you know. And he'd get so excited about whatever it was in the classroom or a project, and pretty soon you were excited about it. And like, how did that happen? But he had that. It's a real gift, I think. Yeah. He was great at questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With no answers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you learn the value of questions from him. Uh, yes. Where, uh, uh, you know, you'd be going on about something, he'd just ask you a question, and, and, you, and you'd sort of raise your eyebrow and say, hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For the next five months. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so he was very good at that. And that, that was true right, really, until the last few months when we really got sick, because we'd be having lunch, and one of us would be talking about a book we're reading or something we're interested in or teaching, and he would ask that question that went to the heart of the matter, and he'd kind of stop and say, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> and many of you had lunch with him regularly, too, right? There was the... Uh Holiday diner, lunch group, were all of you part of that? Groups. <laughs> right. There's multiple yeah. ones, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Three, three different groups, but all Westcon related. Either former students, current or former colleagues, some are both, or there's a retiree group as well. So, hmm. I've, been, I've been having lunch with him for 40 years. 40 years? Yeah. yeah. He's, um, he was my high school, junior, junior year in high school, he was my history teacher. Hmm. And... Um, 
So I've known him since 1962, uh, which <laughs> dates me, I think. But, <laughs> but, uh, but his, uh, so when I arrived, uh, he was in the history department, and I guess hired into the English department. And uh, I looked down, I see Herbert Janik. And, so he said, let's go to lunch, and we've been going to lunch ever since. <laughs> Steve and I both met him in the mid-70s when we were students here, and the members of the um, Geeky History Club. <laughs> You're still members. We're yes, still we members, are. yeah. <laughs> we're going to carry that Never to Never graduated from that bill. So. <laughs> yep. But I, I graduated in, in January of 78, and probably half of my history courses were with Herb. Hmm. Um, he just had a style that clicked with me. And um, not long after graduating, I was here, still doing, starting a little graduate work, and he said to me, let's go get coffee and talk. And, and that was 1978, and we also, for 40 years, continued uh -huh. that. We outlasted several diners along the way. <laughs> <laughs> He used to be. He used to go to Wendy's. We used to go to Wendy's, which used to be across the street. And uh, Wendy's had a great salad bar, but uh, Herb was not a man for green vegetables, and so he would get a junior bacon cheeseburger uh, every week. <laughs> which, when we shifted to, to other diners, he'd get a a, a chili dog. Um, and and the thing about Herb is, is he never missed a day. Never missed a single class yeah. at West Condon yeah. in over 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and he was very proud of that. And, yeah. uh, but he was never sick, ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was uh, incredibly healthy, which shows you it's not what you eat, it's <laughs> what, what else you do, <laughs> I guess. What else you're doing, I guess. Yeah. He was, he was and he was lean. never, he yeah, he never, was gained a, never gained a pound. Yeah. No, he <laughs> was very fit. Yeah, yes. very fit. He was lean, you know, lean yeah. build. And uh, I guess um, the story was told by his, his kids. Uh, the last week or so that when the doctors saw his record, they couldn't believe he, at, at 88, he had not ever been on any medications. There was mm -hmm. nothing on his chart yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. We used to say to him how unfair it was when we were talking about <laughs> a cholesterol medicine or yeah. blood pressure medicine, and his response would be, I think I'll have a chili dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love a chili dog, but I'm going to be sick the next two nights if I eat that. So. <laughs> So it sounds like he was not only very knowledgeable, but also a good friend to a lot of people. Anybody who wanted to be his friend, he would be friends with. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. He was uh, a big basketball fan, um, and he was a. His son went to uh, North Carolina law school, which made him a North Carolina Tar Heels uh, mm. uh, fan. Um, and uh, I used to enjoy pointing out uh, the, that uh, the scandal at North Carolina about the. Uh, the, the so-called tests and uh, and the courses that the student, that the athletes weren't just recently yes very yeah. recently and he uh, yeah, he would take all that in good spirits and continue <laughs> to root for the Tar Heels <laughs> he he hated uh, uh, the uh, Dickie V the, the the announcer he used to watch the ball games with the with the sound off because he couldn't stand listening to Dickie V uh, but he never missed much never missed a Tar Heels game if it was on no. wow. You know, I think one of the things that, that won him so many loyal, devoted friends was he treated everyone with the same respect. If you were the waitress at the diner, um, to the, whoever was president of the college, he treated the same way. Um, and here he was a PhD and an author and very successful man, but you hardly ever learned anything about his personal yeah, side because he always, he always 
was asking, as Ed said, how are you? What are you doing? What do you think? Or did mm. you see this article? Or what do you think of this book? Um, and even when he got sick the last couple of years, you know, with, with Parkinson's, he never complained about it. He might, you know, he said, how are you doing, Herb? Well, I'm doing pretty well. And here is he, you know, he's frail and he's moving slowly. You know, and that's just who he was. Um, and I think that's what won him, you know, the affection and devotion of a lot of people. He's just such a good person. How about, did you uh, two, uh, Bill and Steve, become interested in teaching because of him? Or was this something different? Or Well, I had Herb for a mentor for an internship at the, at the Scott Fenton Museum. Hmm. And uh, after I took his research class and, and a few other things, I was, I was a returning student, so I was sort of a transfer, but I had been out working for a couple of years. And um, I got really interested in working with, um, through this project and working with kind of primary sources and, and really the objects of history. And that got me involved in that, which led through a circuitous path <laughs> to, <laughs> to all kinds of different things and everything I've done in my life so far that has been, you know, worth worth remembering <laughs> um yeah but um it's yeah a lot of it had to do with with knowing herb and, mm, and yeah. herb giving giving me opportunities to explore things and to um you know to be in the background and also the, you know asking questions keeping you going keeping you interested and, yeah. and um yeah, I eventually, would... eventually i got into teaching but it wasn't directly because of herb yeah oh actually it was Good. Yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, when he had to take a sabbatical um, in 1987 for a semester, and he, uh, I'd been working with him on the Preservation Trust, and he asked, it was his urban history class, so he asked me to fill in for the semester. So it was the first teaching experience I ever had, and I, I was crazy. I mean, I, I had known Steve as was a teacher, and, and I thought, well, maybe this is something I might be interested in trying, but nah. <laughs> so I did the semester, and uh, I thought, hey, this is really, I really like this. And uh, it's not just working with, um, you know, being doing research and being alone and isolated, but, but working with people and working with the stuff I love to yeah. work with. And, and, you know, it was Herb had faith in me to give me that opportunity <laughs> yeah. out of, literally, out of nowhere. I mean, I was not prepared. I'd always thought, no, I'm not, I don't want to be a teacher. No, no, no. <laughs> and he kind of snookered me into it. Yeah. And you so became the, a high school? Yeah. The following year, I went to the ARC program and, and uh, became a high school teacher. Yeah. yeah talk about going through the yeah. most challenging <laughs> possible thing, but yeah. Mm-hmm. When when I, so I came right. here as an undeclared student, and in those days, um, there was a basic studies program, which is how I gained admission. And if you did well enough, you could stay and select a major and all that. So it was the spring of 75, the end of my first year, and I said, well, I think I'll try history, you know, because I liked it and read a lot. And uh, I said, well, you have to talk to Dr. Janik. So I found his office here in the basement of Whitehall and went in and... Uh, you know, here I'd never met him before, and he always had a line of kids to talk to him. And I told him, you know, I think I want to be a history major. Well, you'd think I was the only person on earth. Sit down, let's talk. And this is probably for an hour. And I, I was really impressed with that. Um, because of him, I did become a teacher, because seeing not only his uh, unending enthusiasm for history and how he could make it so interesting, but seeing how he interacted with students, you know, mm-hmm. and he really, you know, give him a classroom full of students and a couple of props, and pretty soon he had everybody engaged. And 
And he always, he always treated, I always thought, he treated every student with dignity. And sometimes people, including me, could ask some off-the-wall question, and he'd say, well, let me think about that. I hadn't really considered that. It's, you know, where maybe it was... Oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes people said some <laughs> wacky that. things, and, you know, you'd think he might say, you know. But and I just thought, wow, I, don't, I never had a teacher who was that respectful <laughs> of their students. Um, but yeah, that's definitely what set me on the path to become a teacher. And I think like Bill, anything worthwhile that you know, we accomplished had a lot to do with his um, guidance. Mm-hmm. His, you know, his teaching was, was somewhat unorthodox. For one thing, he hated textbooks. <laughs> and and uh, I do remember in my uh, third year of high school, you know, there, there was some textbook that he, whoever, the powers that be decided that was the textbook. So he would dutifully make us read portions of it, but uh, uh, it was clear he was uninterested in it. He had us read documents, you know, from America, like the Federalist Papers or something like this. Uh, I can remember the Federalist Papers and him talking endlessly about uh, Alexander Hamilton and so forth. And uh, and then I, you know, um, in the early '80s, he and I team taught together for a while, and he was really fond of what he called enactments. And uh, the one that I remember the most was the Sacco-Vanzetti trial, where he, uh, uh, you know, an interesting episode in history. Of course, you could, you know, his goal was to get people to do research. He got, so the <laughs> students had to, you know, pick a character from the, like the judge, the, you know, the police, uh, Sacco and Vanzetti and, and various other people associated with this. And... Uh, so he would get into things like immigration and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethnic prejudice, uh, uh, you know, the, the, really a good way to get into the 1920s. And uh, students had to dress up one day, and we actually held the trial of Sacco and Vanzetti, you know, and, and the students would really get into it. Um, and they had to, uh, we rated them on how well um, they presented their characters and how much they knew about their characters. And it was remarkable how many of them were quite inspired to go, you know, find uh, information about each of the characters, who they were, and yeah. what's known, and various sources. And, you know, Herb might point them to particular uh, places, but they had to go do it themselves. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, and that went on for like a week and a half. Um, and uh, the kids loved it. Was was great, uh, and uh, uh, the kids they're they're probably fifty fifty years old, now. <laughs> yeah. but uh, uh, they're uh, um, um, and you know I remember one one semester he said let's uh, let's do the history of work, and uh, uh, you know and so we you know, came up with all these books about uh, primary texts always, uh, you know Thorsten Veblen's the Theory of the leisure class, <laughs> yikes. Yikes, yikes! You know, and the students read that and other uh, uh, other uh, books uh, that they that you normally wouldn't see being read in a history course, yeah. and clearly nothing out of a textbook. Um, uh, and uh, I remember, you know, he uh, we brought in various speakers. I remember um, one of his neighbors was a psychologist who who worked on uh, Ron Raymond, yes. who worked on. Uh, employment issues uh, was often a contractor for uh, companies and 
where they were, you know, I guess he would try to put oil in troubled waters and, uh, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So he was really experienced about employee, uh, employer and problems. And he was wonderful, brought him in. And of course, Herb would ask the questions. And they were just great questions. And, and uh, Ron Raymond was quite a good speaker, but he, Herb drew him out wonderfully. And uh, uh, the, the students uh, uh, were thoroughly enjoyed that. I've run across a few of them over the years. Um, and uh, they all go back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite amazing. Well, you know, a lot of the things that, I'm sorry, a lot of the things that Herb did, um, I know I later borrowed <laughs> and modified yeah. for high school. You didn't have to modify it much, you know. We did trials in yeah. my classes. We uh, Herb started the History Through Film course here. Um, you know, it had to be in the 70s. And um, I ended up with a colleague at the high school co-writing a curriculum for History Through Film course. But it largely borrowed on what I had done with him, introducing film as a, you know, its own medium and kind of teaching the language of film and then applying it to certain genres of film and let the students kind of sort out what's going on in here and how does the filmmaker approach it. And, and that's all from courses I had with him. Um, so, you know, he, he, was, he had a very fertile, creative mind in terms of, of teaching. And, but I think his idea was always, how do I get people to think? Mm-hmm. Not just to give me back what they read in the text, and you, of course you need some background to have, have context and all that. But he wanted to push you past that into some new realm where you actually have the ability to think things you never thought before. Reason. He's very big on the writing. Mm-hmm. How are you going to express what you figured out? You know, and uh, and I think a lot of us in our teaching. You know, in my, my adjuncting here, I have 100-level history class, and Ed and I were talking about this. I look at it not so much as history, but how do I try to impart to them the love of history, the enthusiasm for it, but also how do I think about it? How do I acquire those skills that will make me a thoughtful, successful college student and person. That's what I think Herb was trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Not history per se, but history as a vehicle to some greater (laughs) ability to use the mind that we have. And that's how we we lived, I think. Thinking back on some of the things that he he did, um, one of the long-term projects he did for several years with students here was having them research the backgrounds (coughs) of the um, what do you call it? Not litigants, but the uh, the people involved in the Danbury Hatters case, the Supreme Court case. Yeah. <clears throat> Going back to the origins of this, this was an attempt by employers to un- intimidate the unions because they felt the unions were intimi- national unions were intimidating them um, into um, you know joining up to unionizing their shops, and the tactic that was used was to um, put a lien on the um, homes of individual union members. So uh, this was uh, the the expectation was that the national union would step up and get the pay off the liens, and then they would be maybe bankrupted or at least harmed, or would you know back off. So there were over two hundred different names, and for for several years, uh, Herb had students research who these people were, what their background was. He, so they would be in the in the um, 
the t city hall and looking up the land records and, and city directories. And, you know, it was a great experience for them. And I think that was another thing that I think yeah. he was aiming at was showing how history is is meaningful, how it's it's not just something that, that happened. It's, it's really trying, what can you learn from this? Yeah. You know, how is it? That, history is basically all human behavior anyway. So what is this telling us about human behavior? What are, what are who were these people? They're not just names on a page. They were actual real people. And his perspective was always <clears throat> the ordinary person at the bottom of the heap. Mm. You know, very rarely in his course did you hear much about you know the presidential view or the. Mm. It was yeah, kind of how how does the ordinary man or woman live in their life and what can we learn about them? And yeah. and one of the things you learn is they're not so different from us, which is probably what he was thinking along the way. You know, their time is different, their technology, but in terms of how they try to live their life and, you know, go about it, there's a universality, I think, about the experience that he was trying to convey. And, you know, I remember in his course, you know, some nights you're doing research and all that kind of thing, and literally it felt like in the cartoon, the light bulb's going off over your head, like, Wow, I think I got what he's trying to. It was a great feeling. Well, Herb's research class, his research seminar class, was was kind of like a treasure hunt. He would present you with some document from some area you'd never studied before, mentioning people you had no idea who they were, and you had to kind of figure it all out. So it was, um, you know, our big joke was in the years we were there, it was this senator from Connecticut named Brandigee. So, you know, it's like everybody in the class, who's this Brandigee guy? You know, he keeps coming up in the letters. So we were like researching sort of progressive era Connecticut and, yeah, and yeah. picking up all kinds of things. But we never, it was an open-ended thing. Like he never had the answer there for us. Yeah. You know, it was, how do you use these things? How do you, how, what is this, how does this help you to get to a point where you're, you know, where you're actually learning something about what's going on. It was a great introductory course because this was a pre-computer day. So there we are in the research area or in the stacks. And by the time you finished, you were familiar with every important research tool, yes. <laughs> which was his point. But and he the made state it. library, and uh, he'd bring in a Yale. He would bring you all yes. over the place on yes. field trips. Yeah. It was just... <clears throat> you know, you, know you, uh, you triggered several thoughts in my head. Um, one is, is that he stood against Eric Roman's view of history. Eric Roman was his colleague, and Eric Roman was a, a, a big guy's view of history, meaning that uh, history is, this, is the story of great men, hmm. and, which you know, was a very popular idea of yeah. history, right? That you, you need to write biographies of, of the, the great leaders, and uh, that's how you get into history. Herb, you know, I think, one of, I think this is a quote from him, that local history is the Rosetta Stone of history. And, yeah. uh, and so he believed that. The other thing is, is his relationship with Truman Warner oh, yeah. was central yeah. to this. Yeah. Uh, Truman Warner was, uh, I was privileged after Truman died to go to Truman's barn, which was just an incredible sight. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, he had a huge barn filled with cubby holes. And in it were what's now in the library, in the archives, the yeah. Warner archives. Truman had saved every piece of junk that the city of Danbury had ever had ever put out. But, and, but Herb and, did talk him out of taking the city dog license yes, registration. Yes, yes. To yeah. Truman's, I yes. sure broke Truman's heart to give that up. Yeah. They apparently, I'm, let me, I'll just interject this line, one thing. They actually stood outside the old city hall in Danbury was being torn down in 1969 About that, yeah. or, or thereabouts, and they 
before something went into the dumpster, they looked at it and <laughs> grabbed it because they were just pitching old records out the, wow. out the door, I guess. Go ahead, yeah, sorry. no, no, seriously, sure. That's so, you know, so the, the local history thing, you know, fit with, you know, Truman wanted to, was working towards a, a deep, what an anthropologist would call a deep study, yes. which he never got to do, yes. but I think he wanted to do that. A deep study of, and I think your history with her has owed something yeah, to this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm st- I, yeah, it still informs everything that I do, thinking mm-hmm. about Truman's approach, and it had to do with communities and families yes. and how they interact and, and um, geography and how that interacts with things. It's it's just it's an anthropologist's view of history in a way, and it's um, mm, interesting. It's, it's really good. So that they they saw eye to eye about a lot of yeah. what they were uh, after intellectually, and uh, and they you know and they managed to um, in, get students to interested in that. So actually, you know, the history department at that time was five guys who uh, were all quite distinguished. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and each of them was quite different from mm-hmm. the other one. Yes. And, yep. uh, um, but the poles were probably Eric Roman and Herb. You know, Herb was yeah, the very right. was the the local history guy. Yeah. Eric was the uh, the, 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 the 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 view from the moon. And I think that they had enjoyed a friendly kind of uh, jousting about it. Oh, but, I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the other things that um, I admired so much about Herb is that and Bill and I were talking about this at lunch today, actually. Um, he said to Bill at one point, you know, every five years I like to have a new project. And so I think one of the ways that he kept himself fresh and not getting into any rut was come up with a new book to write, an article to write, a museum exhibit, which he was very good at, um, a new course. Mm-hmm. His course on local architecture and history ended up becoming the Danbury Preservation Trust, um, which was, I think, very successful. I think you could almost say it's a victim of its own success because it got to the point where what Herb was advocating about the reuse of historic buildings and things like that became such a regular part of city policy that you kind of didn't need to trust there anymore to say it. But in his initial course... Uh, and I've lived in Danbury all my life, take people downtown and say, okay, look up. Well, something you never did before <laughs> at McCrory's or something, you know, one of the old, I'm dating myself, one of the old department stores. And what does the architecture tell us? The style of the time, the materials, but also well, what's the location? What is it saying about commerce and who owns it and who would shop here and you know, it was a whole new way to think about your own community. Um, and I, I, mm-hmm. I always admired that. In my own high school teaching career, I tried to follow that model, um, at least in terms of, is there a new course we don't have that I think we should have? Well, let me write a curriculum and try to get it approved. Or is there, you know, workshops that we could use that we've never had? In fact, we used to bring in on professional development days, uh, Herb and often Jack Leopold, um, you know, this, the, the district would pay for them to come in, and of course they were dazzling, and you'd, you kind of remember why you were a historian <laughs> by the end of the day. Mm. Most of the professional development was not very stimulating. It was pretty <laughs> routine stuff about pedagogy and stuff. Um, 
but those guys were wonderful. And they had us here, they had us to the archives, and then, of course, for lunch, we had to go to the Holiday Diner, and, mm-hmm. you know, like 20 of us, because <laughs> that was the whole, the whole Westcott experience, you had to go to the diner. Um, but I always admired that about him, is that he intentionally came up with a way to keep himself fresh and interested. And his thinking, we talked about it, his thinking was, well, if I'm getting bored with it, how do my students feel? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I've tried hard to copy that part of, from many parts of his teaching, but that part too. Oh, go ahead. Hey, guys. Hi, Chris. It's Paul. Can you hear me, Chris? I sure can. Good. So, as you know, we're here with Ed Hagen and Steve Flanagan and Bill Devlin. And, oh, what uh, a crew you have. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm not there to help you. <laughs> we're reminiscing, and uh, we talked about. Herb's creativity and his, um, you know, kind of worldview as it uh, uh, was, he funneled it down into history and how to teach history and how to communicate with people and his kindness. And um, uh, I know you've experienced all that too. Yes, it sure did. And Ed's, you know, quote from uh, Herb about that local history is Rosetta Stone, that, that is so Herb like. And it was beautiful to, to listen to you guys talking about. Our good friend and to me you know I, I came in a little late and I'm sorry about that guys it's that he was more than a historian he, he's a role model to all of us and I, I like to say and you I know a lot of people have heard me say this before but it, it needs to be said over and over again whenever I grow up I want to be just like Herb Janet <laughs> he's got he always connected with you his yeah, eyes yeah. would look at you he He's what politicians want to be, but they can't be because they don't have his sincerity, right? Because <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> they, it, he has this look that, and he listens to every word you say, and he he cares about every student and every colleague he ever came in contact with. He he looked at connections across things. He he was so he knew everybody, as you guys know, and he would slowly link you up to where you needed to go mm-hmm. and if it wasn't for her and i i wouldn't have been at WestCon. Hmm. and he introduced me to the power that he helped create here at this university and it's that connection to the, the local identity and, and the people and the fact that you can be whatever you you want to go where, whatever you want to do wherever you want to be and this is a home base. This is like Danbury's the launching pad, and Herb Janik was the shuttle. And if you got on the Herb shuttle, you could go anywhere in that. Where do you think he got? Do you have an idea where he got that creativity, or where it welled up from? Was it his something his parents taught him, or was he self-taught? Or I, I found out from his daughter the other day that when he was a teenager, he convinced his parents that they needed a swimming pool. And he, and, it's, and this is perfect, yes. actually, actually fits in with something else I want to talk about. He convinced them to let him build a swimming pool, which his kids later swam in. And he actually dug out the backyard. And they, they were, his, his daughter was astonished that her grandparents allowed him to do this. Dug it, dug it out, put, got the cinder blocks, got a, a, a filter put in, and years later, it was still swimmable. And, and, and he did this as a teenager with a friend of his. And, wow. and so you notice he, he, would, he would just do things. You know, I mean, I remember one day 
he started this sort of, uh, you know, there used to be due days at Westcon, yeah. and he decided that that needed to come back. He and he was he was very fond of telling me that a Jesuit once told him that it was easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, you know, and, and this is the subversive end of Herb Janet. That's so subversive, no one even knows it. Uh, that, so he would, so he just organized this thing, where before you know it, there was a big day of cleanup. West gone, yes. and uh, the Project and, Acorn. That's what the Project Acorn. Project Acorn. 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 That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and I think it was based on. Due days, which go back, yeah. I think, to the 40s or something. Yeah. But he got all kinds of other people involved in planning it, too. Yes, right. <laughs> all kinds of people. No, and never asked anybody's permission. <laughs> they just did it, right? Now, they didn't, you know. See, the other people would, would have come up with such a project and say, well, we better get approval. <laughs> no, no, we don't need approval. Just do it. Yeah. And, so, and, of course, he was right. Because yeah. notice that, by the way, he, he, know, he knew how to deal with bureaucracies. Because he knew that if... If you propose this, that would require a study. It would require a meeting of the vice presidents, <laughs> a, a discussion of uh, you know the legal implications of doing this, uh, and who could get hurt. Do we have insurance? Yeah. Well, that's no. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the place would never get cleaned up. Yeah. Meanwhile, the place got cleaned up, and nobody knew from nothing, yeah. and no one realized it's Herb Janik being seditious. <laughs> and by the end of it, there they came up with a whole plan for landscaping right. the entire. Yes. Midtown yes. campus, yeah. which looks suspiciously, I guess, like what ended up be happening. Yeah, he got that's right. He that got a parking lot he, would he, be green. He, he got in yeah. a landscape architect who was of advanced thinking, who went over to the west side and was flabbergasted by what they were doing to the west side. You know the trees that line the uh, uh, yes. the, the, the boulevard. The, there. the boulevard. Yes, absolutely the wrong tree to plant yeah. there. You know, and, and and the landscape architect says that should not be. Yeah. And so, you know, I heard, you know, I don't know what he did, but it, <laughs> you rest assured that got to somebody. But uh, uh, it would it, it would be would have been done in the most delicate and indirect way possible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was, you know, and if you think about it, you know, the, 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 the West Side campus has figured out how to put a campus on a wooded uh, place. And make not and make you forget that it's in the woods. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. but you know, you bring up something that reminds me about who her was. He he was right. I started by saying he was more than a historian, but I listened to you. He 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 knew how to grow things like literally not just programs but like plants he yeah, was, yeah he was in was home and garden magazine and people were asking him for questions of how to grow this plant in this part of the region of the country he had a green thumb yeah in so many different ways but then so he was the outdoor guy with the garden but he was also a fanatic basketball man <laughs> right and anybody who knows him knows that you have to listen to something about the Tar Heels in some way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. and, and that's that's Herb, right? He he was never, as long as I knew him, a one-trick pony. There were yeah. all these all these, these angles that you and, learned and, from. And he was a Yankee fan too. No comment. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, every, everyone has their shortcomings, but you know. <laughs> but we had we had a, I'm a Red Sox fan, and we had a 40-year lovely, friendly rivalry, never a crossword between us. And because he was a true sports fan, regardless of the team, 
who's not fanatical, yeah. except perhaps the Tar Heels, maybe a little fanatical. There. You know, a little known fact about Herb. Herb was in Bob Cousy's class at Holy Cross when they won the NCAA championship. And um, he was the sports editor of the student newspaper. The editor was Dave Anderson, who became <laughs> wow. the yeah. sports columnist, revered sports columnist for the New York Times. Sports of the Times, <laughs> yeah. Dave yes, Anderson. Yes. That was wow. Herb, I think one of Herb's closest friends. Oh, wow. Darn. Yeah. wow, yeah. There's always something about him. You never fully found out the whole story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Do you think, Ed, I was wondering, and to go back to Paul's question about where did this come from, do you, do you think that his Jesuit education and his, I don't know, I think his parents seemed like they were very supportive, what, the little he would talk about them, but I mean, coming out of the era he came out of and the place, you know, Rochester, the place he came out of, and, and yet he's a marvelously creative, empathetic uh, person, and I, I wondered about that. Well, yes, I, he, he decidedly bears this, the, the, uh, uh, the imprint of, uh, especially the business about thinking. You know, digital uh, education is very, uh, you know, analytical, where you get a problem and you, should, you have to learn how to think about the problem yeah. and how to dissect it, take it apart, look at it from 20 different viewpoints, et cetera, which is uh, uh, what he would do. Uh, I remember once he... Um, he showed me a document, which I wish I had, um, about how to teach a class um, and using the Jesuit method of teaching a class. Wow. And, uh, and, if you, and it is actually the way he, way he uh, taught class. So all that, you know, uh, you know, the rigorous thinking was sort of what the, you know, the Jesuits were good at rigorous thinking, yeah, and that's yeah, what he is. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think another yeah. aspect of this was, uh, I mean, anyone who knows him well, he was a man of deep faith um, and, you know, went to Mass nearly every day and, and you know, and, um, but was never preachy in any way, but I, I always thought lived his faith. Yeah, he'd never know that he yeah. was, mm -hmm. a, you know, a but in daily churchgoer. No, but in terms of... <clears throat> Uh, what I mean by living his faith in terms of you know how he treated others and he was mm -hmm. you know absolutely honest person and compassionate and all the things that I think we want to associate with someone. So I found out uh, quite by accident one day that every Friday he would disappear to the homeless shelter mm -hmm. and uh, wash the dishes. Yeah, he used to do that with, uh, every Friday. So he, he by he never overtly recruited me, but. As, as Herb often did by his example, yeah. and so I was at a point in my life when uh, that made a lot of sense. And about thirty years ago, so I started being his assistant, and then well, now I'm the dishwasher on Fridays. <laughs> but and he never he never said to me, "Oh, you should come," or "Oh, this is good." Um, he would just he might mention casually, like, "Oh, I'm gonna be down at Dorothy Day on Friday washing dishes," and I thought. Well, I can do that too, mm. and that's the way he worked. <laughs> right. Tom Sawyer. Yeah. <laughs> He'd probably be angry that I mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, what would he say to you then in an angry way? <laughs> well, he, I, I mean, you, finding Herb angry was really hard to yeah, do. Yeah, it was. But, but you could tell when he didn't like what you were doing, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there would be an indirection about it, but... Um, 
But, you know, he was really very easygoing in, in most ways. And uh, so, you know, p people didn't bother him very much. But, uh, uh, you know, it was even as, as you say, I, I never heard him uh, put a student down for a really incredibly stupid question, right? <laughs> it would never, never be, there was no such thing as a stupid question. No. And uh, he, uh, uh, yeah, great sort of uh, forbearance and, uh, uh, and patience with people. Yes. Should I tell him the anecdote about the first research seminar class? I think you better. <laughs> I think we've got to put that in there. As <laughs> a first research seminar class always consisted of an exercise where uh, Peter Cerniak, who used to be an administrator here, um, would um, kind of oh, sneak, in, yeah, <laughs> sneak into the class. And um, he would be sitting in the back, and, and he would start an argument with her. And Herb would gradually, this is we're talking about uncharacteristic things, Herb would gradually lose his patience and get angry at him and eventually throw him out of the class. And everybody's sitting there with their mouths open thinking, you know, I'd, I'd been to... Personally, I was going back to school after three years, and I'd been in New York during, you know, a lot of student protests and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, holy crap, nothing like that ever happened in New York. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so then, well, the, of course, the kicker was as soon as Peter left, he would ask, okay, everybody write down exactly what you saw and what you heard. And, of course, then he'd go over it after a few minutes, and, and you'd get 20 different versions of what we all saw and experienced the same exact incident. And apparently he got this uh, idea from Army Intelligence, uh, which he had been in in the, uh, in the uh, armed services yeah. when he served there. And it was the best possible way of understanding the importance of multiple viewpoints. <laughs> and you never forgot it. Yes. I don't think anybody who has ever favorite taken trick, by the way, in law school it. evidence classes. Hmm. Is it's it? to yeah. stage an incident in yeah. the front of the classroom huh. and, uh, and then have every, all the law students write down what they saw. And, yeah. And we just found out today that the, apparently the first class that he did this in, at Paulette's class, yes. uh, apparently he had Pete pull out a fake gun. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he dropped that by yeah. 1974 yeah. when I got there, yeah. fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, but, it, yeah, was it was very great. effective. It was though. very effective, yeah. I tried that a few times with my high school class. You couldn't do it very often. Not because, with a gun, though, Steve. Well, no, <laughs> but the, the staged argument... And you had to pick just the right student who, you know, could pull it off. But you couldn't do it too often because kids would tell tales about it. And yeah. so you do it maybe once every five years and that kind of thing. But but it, it, it obviously left an impression that happened over 40 years ago. We're still talking yeah. about it. And how do you think they, uh, who came up with the idea that Herb should be the one to write the history of the university for the hundredths of the centennial? I think Herb came up with it. I think he did. Probably, uh, yeah. He um, had just retired, had he not? And he had just retired. I think it was. And I think it was. Uh, it had been on his mind, as I recall. And was it Doctor Roach at that time? Yeah. Was the, yeah. They were very close, it seemed to me. Yeah. And um, I think this was an idea that they had talked about that with the centennial coming, that this was necessary. And there was no better guy to do it. Mm. And even the title, right? The People's University mm. is his whole view of, I still talk to my classes about that usually on the opening day about, you know, having gone here myself and been an adjunct for so long here. And, but one of the things I still love about it is this is a place for working class people to get a higher education, which if it wasn't for this place, I wouldn't have gone to college. I, mm -hmm. You know, there's no way I could have afforded it, et cetera. So and I think that was Herb's view that 
you know, this university has a very important function to play still. And if you look at the makeup of our, of our students, which I just love, the diversity, um, it still serves that function, you know, so. But I think that was the origin. I think the centennial and his friendship with Dr. Roach, I think. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if it was his idea. Yeah. As, uh, yeah. And Bill, you worked with him on another book about uh, a period of Danbury history. Yeah, the last century, and you, you yeah. probably know the whole story of that. <laughs> <laughs> we both survived it. But yeah. <laughs> that had been um, actually a, an idea of Steve, your former editor, Steve Collins, um, at the time of the Danbury Tricentennial in 1984-85 and it uh, you know Steve was all set up to write it and he passed away literally after, right after they'd gotten him a computer so the computer was still there and I guess about some years later the same committee uh, had the Tricentennial Committee of which was still in existence met again and then um, oh gosh what was her name yikes Marianne Freed? No, Marianne Freed was the was on the committee, but um, former state legislator. Uh, Clarice, oh, Clarice Osiki. Yeah, this yeah. is great for an historian, right? <laughs> we are the memory of society. I can't remember her name. Anyway, she took it over, and for about 10 years she worked on it, but um, didn't get too far into it. Got a few chapters done, but then she got very ill, and uh, she ended up dying, so by, I guess, the, the survivors of the committee, but by that time were Marianne Fried and Barbara Sosnitsky, asked Herb to do it, and by that time Herb was in his 70s, I think? And, I, yes, yeah, but he was, 2007. I, think, I think he had just started work on the university history. Well, so, he just finished it, I think. So the idea was that that had to be done first yeah. before he could, but his, well, his number one requirement, though, was that Bill co-author it with him. Mm. Right. So I wanted somebody younger in case uh, no, something right. happened to him. <laughs> he had a lot of, lot of respect. the chili dogs to be no problem. Yeah. <laughs> he had a lot yeah, of respect. So we we collaborated on it. It was it was great. I mean, it's a little daunting to be working with your former professor and mentor, who you, you know, even though you were an author yourself, it doesn't matter. It's mm. he's he's the man, and um, <laughs> you know, so we worked together pretty well on it. And, you know, I, I had a lot of, Steve, is, Steve read a lot of the early versions as did Ed, and, and our writing styles are very different. I'm, I try to be very, color, from newspaper writing, I try to be very colorful and interesting. And, and Herb is very lean and to the point, and, and um, he ended up, you know, doing a lot of the final rewrite on things. Not, not aggressively, but just putting it in the same voice. And, and when I read through it, I was, I was just amazed at how well he had done that. Yeah. I think that was his last real writing project um, was was finishing up that book. So I guess we kind of shared the writing and um, shared a lot of it going through it. And in, in the middle of all that, Mary Jane died in yeah. 2009. Mm. His wife. His wife yeah. of many, many years. And, um, you know, it was a tough time but I, I think for him. I think the book served multiple purposes for him. One, this project had been kind of you know stillborn a few times and it was i think herb felt very strongly that danbury needed its history to be updated um and and with that genetic point of view like we talked about you know um but i think also after after he lost mary jane the book gave him i think a, a sense of purpose that really helped him especially the next couple yeah. of years i think yeah because there were interviews to be done and right. you know we would meet at the diner for lunch and it was 
it was a great subject of discussion because we're all Danbury folks and Westcon mm -hmm. folks, and and then he asked us to, and Bill too to you know read some of the chapters or you know, so it was really a wonderful project. And and I remember the the night that we had the kind of the, the party it was April, uh, would it be thirteen, right? 2013, yeah, that's yeah. when it was published. Up at the Amber Room, and mm -hmm. you were all there and all that. To reveal the book. To reveal the book, yes. And I remember Herb got up to speak, and I'm thinking to myself, and at that point, I think he's 83, and I'm thinking, oh my God, 83-year-old guy who just, you know, published this this book, and what do I have to complain about anything? You know, <laughs> it, just, and it, it was just a wonderful testament, I think, to his view of life, you know. You live it. Yeah. You live it. You just you, you find a purpose and you go after it and you put your all in it and it's very inspiring. I think we I counted it up. I think we ended up uh, interviewing or using interviews with over sixty people in mm -hmm. the in the course of the book. And yeah. of course, it was urgent because every day you looked in the paper and there was somebody you wanted yeah. to interview in the yeah. obituary column. Yeah. Yeah. So you know we had a lot of pressure on us to to finish yeah. it up. And all the research I think went to the archives. I believe. Yep. Right? it's all in the so, archives. Yeah, so. In the Westcon archives. In the Western yeah. archives. Yeah. And the Western archives, of course, is Herb's, right. you know, really impetus too, because he wanted to save Truman's papers and any other, you know, documents and things that could be of use. Uh, Truman had, a, you know, as as Ed said, it's just an enormous archive. He lived in Brookfield when I lived in Brookfield, and we would, my wife and I would sometimes go, like many other people, just hang out at his house. And, <laughs> you know, Herb would, Herb would, um, I'm not Herb, Truman would, would just be there cutting out things from newspapers and putting them in a huge box, and then later on he'd go over and, and yeah. categorize them, and you know, they could be about anything. Oh, God. But you want to know anything about anything that happened in Danbury area it's like or a living Connecticut. Yeah. Mm. He's your man. Yeah. You know what I uh, occurs to me as, as I listen to all of you is that um, as Ed said there's the big uh, the great man theory of history and then there's the uh, everyday person history uh, or a theory of history and you really find some great people in the among the everyday people who happen to be college professors or high school teachers who just make a mark on so many people and change, influence their lives. Uh, and I think that's what uh, Herb was, a great influence on a lot of people that just seem to, you know, they think of him very fondly and reverently, that you don't find that often. No, he, uh, he's, exactly, his legacy just keeps going on. We've done a lot about of talking about uh, our memories of her, but can we go each of you and say um, uh, something about what you want people would want people to remember about her? Uh, what was important to you about him, Chris? Can we start with you? Sure. Um, one of the first things for me is his connection with people. No one, no one was discarded. Everyone was important. And one of the lines I recently wrote about uh, that I, I wish everyone would be treat, treated with sacredness. Well, that's what Herb did. Mm. He treated everyone as sacred as everyone had a voice. You know, something that Stephen said that everyone mattered. And we, we've lost that. He is an example of the values of a bygone era that should be more pronounced in today's world. And 
we're not just reminiscing reminiscing about a great man we're also thinking of the things that can make our society a better place and with her mm -hmm. he was a living example of how mm -hmm. society could be better if we treated each other like herb treated everyone he came in contact with he connected with people deeply and even if it was just to say thank you to his secretary you felt his sincerity there was nothing fake about herb janik mm -hmm. and we've moved to the fake part of society in some really bad way and the herb janics of this world herb they live it and if we just follow them like steven ed and bill and hopefully i'm pulling up the rear here um that that we would be so much better and and herb you know some people you know think of you know what would certain people do when I get in a predicament, especially in academia, I think, what would Herb Janik do? <laughs> and it's one of those things, and it comes up with innovative ideas. It's something that, you know, the gentleman talked about that, I think it was Ed, that it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. And, and Herb, Herb's ideas like that, they would come out, right, through the chili dogs. Uh, and, and, but when you walked, and I would always walk to the Holiday Diner, when you walked back from the Holiday Diner, you were thinking about what Herb said, and you're like, okay, that was freaking profound, but it was through a chili dog, <laughs> right? That, right? And so it didn't hit you, at least for me, until I was walking away and thinking about our conversations. So connections, Paul. Mm -hmm. Bill? Well, to me, he was... Um... It's difficult, but he's, he was the best person I've ever known, um, you know, in a lot of different ways, I, both as a person who was dedicated to his profession, who put everything into that, as a person who's an example, and as I think back on him, I just think of uh, more things about he was truly humble, and uh, he did connect with people, as Chris said, and he did treat everybody the same, no matter who you were, and, uh, you know, it's, it's some of the things you don't notice or, or think about at the time but they're there mm -hmm. and you know he's one of the greats he's in a humble sort of way he's just one of the great people yeah. I took, totally agree with everything that Chris said hmm. Steve I think that's a first everyone by the way that Bill <laughs> that said, so. I just want I'm glad this is going to be recorded so I can play this back to Bill alright I just uh, sorry about that and Herb would appreciate that honesty that <laughs> I, uh, I think his kindness, really, and his um, ability to believe in you when you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. Hmm. He was always there for you. Yeah. For his friends. Always. I'll miss him. Yeah. Ed? Well, I, you know, I can't add to anything like that. I will add one thing, though, that is, that's sort of he would enjoy, I think. You know, you could think that he was goody two-shoes, but he was quite capable of, uh, of zingers, you know? Yes. Uh, you know, quite capable. We just, and, and, and you'd always be surprised that, that he actually said that. Uh, because, you know, because as, as, as the other guys have said, he's, uh, he was so humble and so good. That you're just shocked when he knocks your socks off with uh, something that's uh, uh, quite irreverent, you know. And he was quite capable of doing that, and and you look and you say, Herb said that, and, and yeah, he did, you know. So, 
uh, it was quite a feature of his, you know, every lunch there would be at least one. <laughs> and, you know, once in a while it would be, you know, an innocent question about the Mets or something. <laughs> Uh, and, and, uh, but, it, but it would be the right question. Oh, you would be the right question. <laughs> well, thanks for getting together with us for uh, this podcast to talk about a, a remarkable man who influenced us all and influenced countless uh, students and others here in the WestCon and the whole uh, community, too. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Thank you. Paul. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for making it possible. Hmm. I want to also thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who suggested this podcast and did all the technical work to make it possible. When you find WCSU 411 on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, please consider subscribing so you can keep up with all the news about WestCon. After you subscribe, leave a comment there or on Twitter at WCSU 411. Until the next edition, this is Paul Steinmetz. 